Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, What If? An Exploration of Transformational Possibility. The talk was given by Regina Sarah Ryan on August 26, 2023, via Zoom. Regina is the editor of Home Press, a workshop leader, retreat guide, and author of The Woman Awake, Igniting the Inner Life, Praying Dangerously, Only God, and other books. In this talk, she asks us to consider what we think would happen if we lived on the basis of love as the ground of all being, love as not being scarce. She notes that there are ways that we can orient ourselves in this direction and keep attuned to it. During the discussion, Regina refers to her teacher, the spiritual master Lee Lasowy. If you would like to participate in the writing exercise that she offers, feel free to pause the tape for a few minutes to do so. And if there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Regina Sarah Ryan. So the inspiration for this talk is from a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Actually, somebody else took words from his journal and created a very short poem from it called What If? And what I'd like to do is read it to you slowly and ask you to be with the question that it raises at the very end. To just simply observe and be with yourself as the question at the very end is asked. Okay? Not necessarily to answer it, just be with it and sense what happens. The poem goes like this. What if you slept? And what if in your sleep you dreamed you went to heaven? And what if in your dream you plucked a strange and beautiful flower? And what if when you awoke you had the flower in your hand? Ah, what then? The beauty of this poem for me, like the beauty of so much poetry, is that it actually leaves one with an open space rather than with a verbal answer. You don't answer the question, ah, oh, what then? Or if you do, you'll pretty soon have yourself in a little bit of a quandary to try and really defend what you're saying. But if you let the question hang and simply observe, sense into what happens in the body or what stops when you ask a question like that, this what then is about an inner experience. Something moves in me when I ask that question of myself. Something vibrates, something incomprehensible. And yet, I sense that it's true. It's something numinous. Something unreasonable, perhaps, arises, not in words. And yet, I have a sense that it's something that is longed for. Something magical or mysterious opens up. Yet, it's something that I can relate to because I recognize those words and they take me someplace but it's a magical or mysterious place that it takes me. I'll repeat the poem again because I love it so much. I've known it for so many years of my life. What if you slept and in your sleep you dreamed and went to heaven? And what if in your dream you plucked a strange and beautiful flower? And what if when you awoke you had the flower in your hand. Ah, 
what then? So I want to tell you a few stories about what if. I invite you to be with these stories, not to try and figure them out logically necessarily, but to observe or sense into or just be with the experience that these stories might evoke for you. The first story occurred years ago when I was one of the caretakers for my friend Inga, who was dying. Lee, our teacher, had asked a group of us to be her caregivers 24-7. It wasn't always the most pleasant job because she was in extreme pain. And when you enter a room with someone who's in extreme pain, it's challenging. What do you say? What do you do? But nonetheless, you go in to offer your presence. One day I walked in, the beautiful Sunday morning, I walked in and Inga was laying in her bed. Her eyes were as wide as saucers. And she called out my name. She said, Regina, Regina. God is love. God is love. The second story, I'm on a solitary retreat at our retreat center here in Arizona. I really enjoy going on retreat. I really am nourished by long periods of silence. I had recently received, before I went into retreat, a communication from one of my sisters She's the second oldest in our family. And she has the sense that I did things, and because I did things, she couldn't do them in the family structure. So I was feeling into the pain of that as I was on retreat. And I remembered this quote. I might have had it with me at the time, but it was a quote from Lee. And it goes like this All failure to live life richly profoundly, passionately to its fullest, sacredly, all failure under all circumstances is based on the feeling that love is scarce. All recoil and all resistance to the spiritual master is based on the feeling of a scarcity of love. The instinctual mechanism that creates doubt, confusion, resistance, and recoil is the textural feeling that love is scarce, that you can't get enough or won't get enough. To recognize primarily that love is always available is waking up. So that quote was so moving for me, and I was writing about my sister and her sadness that there wasn't enough love within our family for her to be able to thrive in her life. And you know, in big families, it's always that way. Somebody gets more attention than others. But that she lived her life with the sense that love was scarce and that she didn't get her share. So I'm writing about this. And as I'm spending my time alone and I'm writing and I'm sitting with this in meditation, just sitting with it, not trying to necessarily analyze it, Something arises in me, this sense that love is not scarce arises in me as a feeling sense, not as an intellectual grasp, because how can you do that? There's no place to go weigh it or substantiate that love is scarce or not scarce in any situation. But the felt sense, the absolute knowing in the body arose that not only was love not scarce, but that love was the ground of all being. That's the way the phrase came to me that love was the ground of all being. So that was a really cool moment of the retreat. So like Inga, recognizing that God was love, and for me in that moment, being gifted with the phrase that love was the ground of all being, the rest of the retreat was spent for me in what if. What if I lived on the basis of love is not scarce. What if I actually spent my life recognizing that love was the ground of all being? So I actually did a lot of writing in that retreat, and I would write things like, if I was immersed in the reality that love was the ground of all being, I would, and then I would write, or I wouldn't, or these things would, or these things wouldn't. 
And I just really explored that for myself. So maybe some of the things I'm talking about might have some value for you and they might inspire you to do some work on your own. And we'll take a moment to jot down a few ideas after I tell my third story. So that's two stories. There's the anger story. And then there's the love is pure story. And the third story comes when I had written a book, Igniting the Inner Life. And as a result of that book, I was invited to a number of places to give book talk, bookstores or groups of people to talk about the inner life. So I would begin as I begin so many of my talks, which is basically by saying what I'm going to talk about is not anything you haven't heard before or something that you don't know. You may not have gotten it in these words, but it's something that you already know. And that my job here with you tonight is to simply fan the fire, the little fire that's there, that fire of whatever you want to call it, longing, fire of love that is in you already and that wants to be realized. I'm a good dramatic reader and so on. So I would look around the room after I had given this little introduction and I would see people reaching for their Kleenex and wiping their eyes because what it did was it took them out of the mind, into the body, into the heart and into this wordless, unreasonable, numinous desire. You know, why are people sitting here tonight? when they could be watching Top Gun or something, as some of my friends are doing tonight. (laughs) So here we are. (laughs) It was the sense that just in those few words to remind us that this is there in us and we long for it, but we don't necessarily even know what it is we're longing for. We don't even have necessarily the words that we could put into it. Great musicians have used metaphors, beautiful metaphors in the vowel culture, in the vowel music, the metaphor of the bird, the caged bird who wants to fly. There's so many beautiful pieces of music and poetry that reflect this inner longing. Even the metaphors that we get from Christianity, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't try to put that in a diagram, but you just sit with that, there's actually something quite organic that arises in the body with those few words. With that, with the retreat and stories that I've told you and asking myself the question, what would it mean if love was not there? How might things really have been different? How might my difficulty be faced if I was consumed with that? I wrote a lot and I kept silent a lot too. So I'm going to take about three minutes to just give you a moment. If you want to, grab a piece of paper and a pen. If you don't, you can just sit silently and ask yourself these questions. So what I'm going to ask you is, we hear a lot of these kinds of phrases. God is love, like Inga said to me. Popular music tells us all you need is love. My father and I are one. The Holy Spirit inhabits your very soul. If you had the faith the size of a mustard seed or the great Hindu scriptures, you are that. There is no separation. Or maybe you have a moment that doesn't necessarily even have words attached to it, but maybe you have experienced a moment of unconditional love or what you would call unconditional love. Maybe holding your baby in your arms or maybe looking into your dog's eyes and you have no other way to relate to that except to say there's something unconditional about that wordless or maybe you had a drug experience in which you knew something beyond your normal everyday life experience so i'm going to give us three minutes jot down one two three four ten phrases i'm calling them mantras some of them can be cliches and some of them can be mahavakyas Mahavakyas are great wisdom teachings that the great sages for all ages have given to us. So one of the great mothers, I studied her work, one of her Mahavakyas that stayed with me forever, she said, you can never fall from my lap. 
that has impact for me. And if I got that, if that became absorbed in my cells, what if? What would that mean? But this part of the exercise is just to come up with a few phrases, maybe from your teachers, maybe from your readings, maybe from popular music or life experience. So we've got three minutes. Go. So if you have one that's particularly strong for you, you might put it up in the chat, one of the mottos or mantras or sayings that is strong for you, and chat it to all of us at one time, and then we'll begin to share some. So let's begin with a motto, a mantra, a mahavakya. Speak to us the mantra that you put up, and then say to us, what if? What would that mean for you if, what if that was what you plucked when you went to heaven and you came back down and it was still in your hand? Now, uh, what if? Now what? What if life is ever changing? What if you got that life was ever changing? What would your life be like? I would never be anxious or upset about anything because mostly I find that my frustrations come from resisting things changing. And they're small things, moment to moment, day by day. Not even big calamities or catastrophes, but just little things every day. A good example, the other day I left a cup of ice on the counter because I was in a rush. And I was so frustrated that I left the cup of ice on the counter because I really wanted it. And if I could have just gotten in that moment, life is ever changing, a cup of ice wouldn't have mattered at all. Did you think about that life is ever changing at some point? When you recognize that you left the ice there? No. (laughs) (laughs) And it melted. (laughs) Well, we have a really old dog. She's laying here on the floor. And every day that she wakes up, I'm always surprised. The vet said he doesn't even know how she lived this long. It's really unusual. But, of course, we hold her up a lot, I think, with our loving attention. And one of the things that I discovered as a young student was that the substance of love literally holds the body up when there's no other reason for it to be alive. We see this every single day in people, but it's very graphic when you have a lovely old dog laying here on the floor. She wants to be right with us, and she's snoring loudly, She could die at any moment. And what even causes us to continue to the next moment or the next day? And it just reminded me of love holds the body up when there's no other reason to be alive. And I get reminded of this every day. What if it was magic? What if I was unaware of what actually happens? What if I create the things I am most attuned to? Can you speak to us about that? Certainly. So what if it was magic? It is magic in one sense. Everything is magic because we don't understand what it really is in one sense. And what if I'm unaware of what actually happens? In a real sense, I haven't developed the ability to see the world as it is. Sometimes I think I do, but most of the time I'm I'm really sure that I don't see the world as it is. I see the figment of imagination that gets interpreted in my brain and in my consciousness of what I think the world is. And would it really be nice to get past that and start seeing the world as it is? And what if I create the things that I am most attuned to, like the flower suddenly appearing in my hand when I wake up and it was really there? Did I imagine that? Did my imagination create that? And is that the magic that happens in my world. This is very rich for me, bringing us the domain of magic. I don't know if this qualifies as magic, but it feels like magic to me. What I wrote was, to be in love means to be literally inside love, as though love is a place, a space, a palpable actual thing. If I think about it, the only other places like that have been I have been inside art, and I have been inside music. Those are the only other two. And if you were inside of love, what then? 
it seems like a foreign land because it's a rare feeling. Uh, it'd be great to live there. Hmm. And how about your everyday existence? How would that be? Uh, probably too intense for words. Mm. <laughs> it's a story that C.S. Lewis tells about the people from hell who get a chance to go to heaven for a day and decide if they want to stay there or not. So they all get on the bus and they get to heaven. They step out of the bus and they've walked about 10 steps and the, the grass under their feet is piercing them so intensely, even through their shoes, that they run back on the bus and go back to hell. Because heaven is just so amazingly real and hell is such an illusion, such an illusory world of comfort and convenience. To everyone, oh love that fires the sun, keep me burning. Love is the name we give to consciousness when it awakens to its identity with all things. Okay, talk to us about that and what then? Well, the first is a quote from Bruce Coburn my favorite singer-songwriter. That imagery just speaks to me about the radiance of love. And the radiance of love is something that can be felt. Just like you feel the sun's rays, it's of the same order of radiance. That's another word for love for me, even maybe radiance. And I want to be burning with that all the time. So I do my best to align my life that way. And the second one is a quote from the teacher, Rupert Spira. Love is the name we give to consciousness when it awakens to its identity with all things. So when the usual duality of subject and object is collapsed, consciousness becomes aware that it's identical to all things, the 10,000 things no longer remain objects to consciousness, but become identified with consciousness itself. It's the way that consciousness becomes aware of itself as consciousness through the medium of the 10,000 things. And when that collapse happens in the subject that we tend to call consciousness and the outside things that we tend to call the 10,000 specific things out there, when that duality breaks down, collapses, then love is born in that collapse. That's where love is. And what then? <laughs> I've had enough experiences with those lapses that I'm aware that it's peace, it's joy, it's contentment, it's fullness. Nothing else needs to be added. You've got a famous quote. Can you repeat it for everybody and then tell us, ah, what then? May the heat of suffering become the fire of love. It's above my pay grade. But I can say that in the fleeting experiences that I've had, love of this order that I think you're speaking of is in another realm. It's in another universe. This world is kind of superimposed on that. And to get to that depth of existence is, I think, the path, where the path leads. What then? I have no idea. I've seen what's happened or I've read about what's happened for people who have experienced that and gone mad. And then perhaps returning to functionality. But sometimes there is a hint of this. For me, it's in relationship to people sometimes that I feel a lot of love for. And that expands, exudes into the rest of my life. It's a mood. Mm -hmm. So it's not so exclusive. Someone else who didn't put theirs in the chat. I discovered this quote from M. Scott Peck in a book called All About Love by Bill Hooks. And the quote is, love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own 
or on others' spiritual growth. Love is as love does. Love is an act of will, namely both an intention and an action. Will also implies choice. We do not have to love. We choose to love. As you repeat that to yourself or read that to us, what's the sense that arises for you? And what's the what next? What does that do for you? The fact that it's aiming at fostering, nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth lifts, for me, it lifts the whole emphasis away from what can I get more to what can I contribute. So you might be in a conversation with someone and that recognition might arise for you that your purpose in being there might be to support them in their spiritual work. And in that moment, your availability to them might be somewhat different. If I had the presence of mind at that time, I would say yes. One of my own teacher's teachings was to be there available for service is love. Mm. And that rings true pretty well at any time if I stop to think what's going on. Yeah, that's the critical issue that you raise, if I had the presence of mind to be with that. I struggle with positivity. That quote, live one moment at a time for heart that left behind, is a griefing and healing and goes with everything. None of that stuff that you know and understand and feel can help you get out at that moment of grief. Now, that's the dilemma that we face in life is that this arising of this kind of suffering, we want to be out of it. <laughs> and so we immediately put up the defenses and the struggles, and then we get ourselves wound tighter and tighter. Make it worse. Yeah. Understanding other people, but not for ourselves or for anybody else. You would be patient and you understand and you will give everything for yourself. And like, no, no, uh -uh. you don't have time for that. You can't do that. <laughs> In reference to drug experiences, I remember once I just isolated myself. And for hours, I just said, God is love. God is love. So I asked myself, when God is love, who am I? So I was very interested in coming this evening because there was an author who wrote a book called Only God. And so when we have only God, like who cares about transformation? You can write a book of 800 pages about only God. You can study it. You can read it. You can look at images of it. And then, ah, uh, what then? You have the flower in your hand. You've plucked it. You've been given these amazing opportunities. You've been to heaven. You have plucked the flower. I hope this is coming across as being something that can be a pee under the mattress. It's kind of my hope for this talk, because it is for me. It's very alive for me, the question, ah, what then? It can become a sort of morning prayer to assert what I have believed, what I have prayed for, what I have hoped for, what I have heard from the great masters, even what I have experienced in a moment of revelation. And then to orient my day, my life, to that being real, even though I'm going to fail a million times during the day, but to orient myself in the direction of only God. You know? like I'm hoping that facing the direction only God is going to get me through the gates of heaven. Someone else with a statement that they'd like to share. So there, with the grace of God, am I. While I was in India, serving at the Mother Teresa Orphanage in Chennai, I was put into a room 
with a bunch of toddlers with three or four other volunteers and given an hour, connect with somebody and just be with them, just be with this child. And the child they ended up being with was somebody who had been abandoned in an open sewer because she had attempted to be aborted and she didn't have any hands or feet or eyes or nose. She had no senses, no ears even. She couldn't hear. And I had an hour with this child. It's one of those things many of us have probably had an experience like this where that hour was a lifetime. And I just tried to think first, how can I connect with this child? And then it was a completely spontaneous, no other alternative. I couldn't get their attention because there was no senses for them. So I just picked this child up and held her against my, my chest and hummed to her. And she could feel the vibrations and she responded by wrapping her limbs around me and just pressing her head up into my throat to be able to feel the vibrations of my humming, singing to her. And this phrase, there with the grace of God am I, came because the first thing that came to mind is, boy, don't take your life for granted. We're so lucky. This could be me. And I realized, no, this is me. Just had one of those moments. And it's really stuck with me. What that leaves me with, what then is compassion and a yes, basically an unqualified yes in life to serve because it's all me. And I'm grateful for my bum hip now. There's others of us in this forum who are also having problems with hips. And I think it's nothing. And there are millions of people suffering the exact same way and worse and less. And I'm just part of this all. Even though they've been through so much, they act like nothing's wrong with them. And they're just so full of life. Yeah. Her back legs are literally basically useless limbs that she drags around with her. She has her front legs and their back legs are these floppy stilts that keep her sometimes up, sometimes she falls down hills. Thank you, really. I'm going to share a couple of poems with you because some of you who've been on talks with me before know how much I love poetry. And in this case, once again, for me, the beauty of this type of a talk is that as much as we sometimes struggle to be able to articulate how our life would change or what moves us, we really are operating in the domain of the poetic in these types of things. Because like I said, with love is scarce, it's not something that can be measured, but it is definitely something that can be a felt impression to the being. So with poetry, much the same. So I want to share a couple of very favorite poems that have to do with a little bit with what their topic is tonight. And this one is by a poet named Antonio Machado, and it's a translation from the Spanish. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamed, a marvelous error, that a spring was breaking out in my heart. I said, along which secret aqueduct, O water, are you coming to me, water of a new life that I have never yet drunk? Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, ah, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart. The golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, ah, marvelous error, that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a hearth. 
and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night, as I slept, ah, marvelous error, but it was God I had here inside my heart. Next one is a little bit of a different mood, but also it's about what if. At a writing workshop that Mary Angelon and I did two weeks ago, the subject of the writing workshop was Memento Mori Amor Fati, which means remember death and love your fate. And this was a poem that I shared with people in that workshop. It is that, ah, what then type of poem. It's called If You Knew, and the author is one of the great American contemporary poets, Ellen Bass. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if you could see them as they are? Soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time. I'm going to move into a final section of our talk tonight and invite you to let's talk about working with what if rather than casually alluding to it or putting it on our refrigerator door. How many people put wonderful quotes on the refrigerator door? It's great if you read them enough that they become a part of your life. So that's one way we could work with this. A lot of times these great statements from people are actually the results of practice, not the method or the work of practice. So it's very easy to hear, love your neighbor as yourself, but it's the doing of that. It's the being with that. It's the practicing on the basis of that on a daily basis, which makes that possible. But if you just say to someone, love your neighbor as yourself, oh, yeah, we resonate with the truth of what that means. But what we're resonating with is a statement of the result of a long practice. It's not something that you hear it and you go, yeah, okay, that's my thing. I'm that now. So these great statements, we can keep them in mind and they point to that, but we will continually be discouraged if we haven't realized them or surrendered really and allowed them to absorb into our skin. And this is why we practice. We practice in order that our life shows up as sane and joyous and kind and generous. And if by any chance we ever reach the point where we're all loving our neighbor as ourself, great. What I'm saying is here, sometimes what we have done, at least those of us who have walked a spiritual path, is we've taken stories of these great Mahasiddhas and these great masters and looked upon them as if this is what we're striving for. And yes, we are, of course, in some ways, but also this can be a very great source of discouragement to us. So in the invitation to tonight's talk, I talked about how common it is to reach a place 
even after years of work, that we become discouraged with the progress that we anticipated or the goal we aimed for because it seems so unrealistic. I think some of that is because we have taken on unrealistic expectations. I think we may have taken on unrealistic role models, not in the sense that we could not take someone to be inspired by, but to translate the way in which their life showed up and to try and imitate that in our own lives would be a very great source of discouragement and disappointment. So I'm suggesting that we lower our expectations for a much more worthwhile and honest approach to spiritual life. Let's tell the truth, what am I? In very organic and natural and real ways, rather than attempting to gloss over something with some high spiritual principle. We've not reached that pay grade. But what if the very state that you are currently in is exactly where God's placed you or exactly where you're supposed to be right now? What if? What if that were absolutely true? That where you are, just this, is the only place you could be and exactly the place you should be. And you started from there. What if? What then? And we're able to drop some of these unrealistic expectations about how we're supposed to have no judgmental thoughts or supposed to be so completely pure and perfect and so on. This might be a really big detriment to our spiritual life is not experiencing the just this of our current state. What if I just rest in that sense of myself right now? And even if what arises is self-judgment, what if I could simply just rest in that and let that be what's arising? It's like saying yes, even to the arising of the no. I studied prayer a lot because I was writing a book about prayer. And one of the great statements from the New Testament is pray always. All right, pray always. I'm lucky if I have a couple of conscious minutes during the day when the arising of prayer comes naturally. And sure, I'm going to practice on the basis of that and practice mantra and so on. But to really take these beautiful goals or aims, but also realistically and with gratitude, the fact that I had three moments during the course of this day when my heart turned to prayer. Wow. Because the moment that we recognize that we're not praying, we've all of a sudden woken up. That's kind of cool, huh? The moment we recognize we've left our attention in meditation or any place else or left the presence of somebody else as we're speaking to them, the moment we recognize that, that's the wake up. That's a wake up call. So how many times have we woken up today? Well, how many times have you lost it? And then eventually you remembered. One of the great stories in the Gurdjieff work is about a Raj who leaves in the morning saying he's going to stay conscious of every moment during the day. And he gets back on the bus at the end of the day and he remembers finally that he was supposed to have been paying attention all day. Hey, good for him. Only took him 24 hours. Another practical possibility for the what ifs, especially those of us who immerse ourselves in the spiritual work, there's so many practices. And I wonder if we may be digging a lot of shallow channels through the desert rather than taking one or two and digging them deeply. So what if I asked the group in the Memento Mori workshop to take the possibility of living till the end of the year as if this was their last year of life? What would happen then? What might your life look like if you really got that this person whose hand you were touching this would be the last person they ever touch? As Ellen says in that beautiful poem. Well, what if this really was my last Saturday night talk? <laughs> One of you would have to fill in. So the digging of a channel deeply 
What if you dedicated the rest of the year to just one particular form of remembrance? Maybe it was repetition of the name of God, or maybe it was the practice of remembering death with each person that you met. So make yourself a post-it note or a t-shirt with your favorite thing. So I'll tell one personal story here. Last Wednesday was the fourth anniversary of my husband's death. It becomes a very special day for me because it's a tender way to recall the beauty and the love of our life together. And several of my relatives texted me notes and were asking how I was doing and so on. And I was weepy all day, not because I was so much missing Jerry or feeling sad in a traditional sense, but also because the love that I had experienced as his mate just wells up in me and I weep. And we happened to have a home press meeting and somebody was yelling at me for something. (laughs) And I started crying. So it was a really good thing because my tenderness of being opened by love sensitized me to the suffering of others that whole day. And so it's the kind of a tender heartbreak that you never want to stop. Our beloved teacher, Lilazowicz, would talk about the broken heart that only God could heal. And this kind of orienting ourselves deliberately, perhaps, in ways that may be a source of heartbreak can actually be a tremendous opening to the compassion and love and tenderness towards life and towards everyone. It also is a tremendous opening towards the recognition of impermanence. So opening to the dying in each moment, that's a really good practice to take on and opening to heartbreak because we've all experienced heartbreak and living with them, sitting with them, not being afraid, not morbidly obsessing about them, but allowing the heart to be opened. So I went on retreat over my birthday two weeks ago and There was a group at the same retreat center where I was, and they were a group that was focused on heart love or something. I don't know what their group was called, but it was something like that. And I would get up very early in the morning, which I love to do, and go out because it was super hot down there. And I would go to the pool at 530 in the morning and lay in the pool and have my pool meditation. And this whole group from this other retreat that was going on in the same place were all up on the balconies of this building. And they all were facing the sunrise, and the sunrise in Scottsdale is absolutely gorgeous. And they all had their arms out, and they were standing there just in silence. They were standing for almost 45 minutes every morning from the dark with the emergence of the light. And I knew from knowing what their group was about that they were opening their heart to the rising of the sun. So they inspired me, and I began to just allow myself to have my heart opened by the rising of the sun while I was there with them. So yeah, there's many, many ways that I can keep myself attuned to this reality that love is not scarce, that love is the ground of all being, and make this a passion and a dedication of my life. That's all I have to say. Said lots. So I'm open for questions now or comments based on something that has arisen for you in the course of this talk or something else inspirational that you'd like to share. I don't think it's possible to experience love if we're not honest with what's going on for us. So I think you alluded to this. And comparing ourselves to others on the path seems like a dead end. But I actually feel, I don't think this is in contradiction to what you were saying, but I actually think that higher expectations are possible because I think that it is possible for love to dawn in our lives, in our own way, in our own very unique way. This is personal. You're talking about your husband's death, and I'm thinking about my wife's death. and. The last words that she said, she was crying, and I was wondering if she was suffering and pain in some way. And she said, 
I love them so much. Speaking about our kids, she was in a place of love. It just seemed that was all there was. And we live our whole lives with trivialities. <laughs> the subject matter reminds me of that. And then I'm also thinking about, oh my God, this statement that Arnaud Desjardins made in ever-present peace about how it's not possible to love God for the promise of the traditions to manifest in your life if you have an unloving attitude toward anyone. And that it's possible to make a turnaround in the moment when you experience that and do something else. And so I think it's important to be honest if I'm feeling whatever, anger or jealousy or whatever that is, but also to make a turnaround. And I'm thinking about Lalit's talk that she gave a few months ago about removing obstacles to our heart's desire and how if love has really impacted us and we're in touch with that, that we'll do that. Wait, do you know how or why or when did you end up in this journey? Well, I guess I've been on this journey ever since I was a child because I happen to be graced by being raised in a family that practiced prayer. We prayed together. So I think that started me on my journey. But that's another book that I have written. So <laughs> another time. Thank you for the question. Thank you all for your kindness, your attention and giving me the opportunity to speak about something that has a lot of energy for me. Blessings and good night.